to another episode of Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. So glad you tuned in to this one. This is episode 4-0, the big 40, and we have Mary Burgess from BC Campus sitting down and chatting with me because Chad Flynn and Sally Vinden are away on assignment for this week, and so we want to wish them the best of everything. But we also want to say, hey, thanks to you for tuning into this podcast because this podcast exists to promote those who are honing their craft as educators. Life is an apprenticeship, and we want to support a rising guild of educators across all disciplines and backgrounds who wish to center their praxis and their pedagogy on what really matters. So thanks for tuning in. We're glad you're here. If you have a moment and you haven't done it yet, please subscribe. And if you've subscribed or if you've just subscribed, please leave a review for us. That'd be awesome. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, we also like to uh, put a little beat back on that algorithm and uh, get our podcast moving up the ladder, so to speak, so more people can listen to these great guests that we're bringing on. So if you wouldn't mind doing that, that would be awesome. Thanks again for tuning in. This is Mary Burgess from BC Campus. Not going to say any more. You'll hear everything about her in the podcast. We'll catch you on the other side. Take care. All right. So you ready? I'm super ready. Okay. Me too. Okay. Here we go. Three, two, one. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. So glad you've uh, taken the time to listen to us today. Today is a very special day. We have Mary Burgess with us today. Mary Burgess is the Executive Director at BC Campus. And I'll just say this at the outset for transparency and uh, just to kind of calm my nerves a bit. Mary's my boss. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, it's... um, I've been wanting to do this interview with you, Mary, for a while, and uh, obviously we've been going through some interesting times in the last little bit. So things happening. Yeah, <laughs> just a few things, and uh, so I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today and uh, taking the time to be on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Tim. I'm really honored to be asked, and uh, I love talking about all of this kind of stuff every time recently that I'm in a forum where, you know, it's sort of a webinar or a panel or something like that at the end of it, everybody's always saying, can we just keep talking? Yeah. It's really pretty enjoyable to talk about, about this field that we're in. Okay. Good. Yes, it is. Absolutely. All right. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? And uh, I, I just mentioned that you are the executive director of BC campus, but uh, mm-hmm. give us a little bit more background on yourself. Sure. Uh, So I came to BC campus about, I think, eight years ago, actually, this month. Um, And uh, prior to that, I'd been at Royal Roads University for 10 years, Um, five of those as the director of the Learning and Teaching Center there. And the other work was as an instructional designer, um, as well as working on the implementation of Moodle at Royal Roads in the late 2000s, um, which was <laughs> the brand new um, Moodle out of the box that needed to be highly customized. That was me working with faculty and developers to do that. Um, And then before that, I was uh, at a couple of different places, primarily UVic, um, as a network administrator because my pathway into all of this has been a little bit weird because after getting my undergrad degree in liberal studies, I waited tables for six years and um, then decided I needed to do something about getting a different job. And so I went into this program at UVic that was called. at that time, the Information Technology Professional Program and later Applied Management of Information Technologies. And it was sort of a program for people who already had degrees um, and wanted to work in in the technical field, but um, didn't want to um, be sort of programmers. And so so that program really was um, pretty influential in moving me into where I am now, um, in part because the co-op term that I got uh, in that program was with UVic Continuing Studies. 
uh, some of whom were doing distributed learning. And so that was really my very beginning of getting involved in post-secondary education and specifically in, in distributed learning. And that was in 1998. Um, so that's kind that's sort of my weird pathway of getting here. Um, along the way, picked up a master's degree from UBC where David Porter, the previous executive director at BC campus, was one of my faculty. And uh, we struck up a relationship that ultimately led to me coming to to, uh, BC campus. So that's the roundabout route of kind of how I got to where I am right now. Well, that's encouraging to a person like me who who likes unconventional ways of getting to yeah. a, to a goal. So, yeah. I, I love that story. Mm. Um, so, institutions that are switching LMSs right now, which I know you couldn't, you know, you couldn't have picked a better time to do that, ladies and gentlemen. Um, <laughs> Man, you, you kind of know what they're going through in the sense of o- opening up a I new do. LMS right out of the box. I have two things that are sort of um, things that are um, memories that make me go, and one is when I'm in a really busy restaurant and the servers are what we call in the weeds. Um, And the other is when people are implementing learning technologies like LMSs and things are going (laughs) badly. I just have like some, some, some really strong memories of those moments. Um, so yeah, I definitely empathize with that work happening right now and and really all of the incredible work that's happening in the teaching and learning centers right now. Those Mm -hmm. folks are really the backbone alongside faculty right now. And so, uh, yeah, a lot of respect for those folks. Yeah. They're, they're the unsung heroes of this whole Mm -hmm. situation that we're in right now. And, um, there are certainly not enough of them. That's for sure. Yeah, understatement of the year right there. Um, So you led a webinar recently. So when people listen to this, it won't be like the one that you did yesterday because it'll be a couple weeks removed. You you did a webinar recently. Tell us a little bit about that. So this was, um, if, if we're talking about the same one yesterday, there was, so yesterday in today's time, um, there was a webinar that was actually hosted. So there's a group that does a Canadian, uh, distance learning survey every year. And um, they were hosting a webinar to talk about some results of a survey that they did with faculty um, just at the end of August, early September to kind of gauge where everybody was in terms of the pandemic and their teaching. And so uh, so I was one of the panelists on there talking about um, sort of what we're seeing in British Columbia um, with respect to how folks are managing uh, their teaching practice, what we're hearing from them um, in BC institutions and and some of the ways in which uh, people are making changes to the way they teach and the way they assess um, in their courses to accommodate um, both online learning and online learning that's happening very rapidly in a stressful situation for everybody concerned. Yeah, because it's not like this is we're in a crock pot with this kind of stuff. Like it's, it's all microwaved, right? No, exactly. Although it was really interesting yesterday. um, It was pointed out in the webinar that, you know, for those of us who've been kind of, um, I I say I have had a career of cajoling and trying to convince people that online learning actually is a really impactful uh, way of, of, of learning. And, um, and someone suggested yesterday that, we've seen uh, a rapid shift that many of us have been hoping to see for a number of years. And what it's shown us is that it was possible that, um, that when there is uh, a reason to do it, that people will do it. And then they will learn that it actually is an effective way of, of learning, or at least as effective as what many of them were doing already. Um, so that's been interesting to see how quickly a pivot could take place when there was a, a really strong incentive to do it or no, no other option but to do it. Um, so I, I thought that was interesting insight for those of us who've been trying <laughs> to make that change happen slowly over two decades. Yeah. Isn't it interesting, right? Where um, people, people like yourself and others have been saying, we need to make a switch. We need to make a transition. Mm-hmm. We need to mm-hmm. begin integrating more blended mm-hmm. hybrid learning 
uh, paths into what we're doing. And, and then in, in my world, in the trades world, it was always pushed back against what, and the rhetoric was, you can never do trades online. Right. Hello. Yeah, we're doing that. <laughs> and, exactly. um, you know, March came along and you're right. It, it really, uh, it really changed the whole landscape. Um, mm-hmm. Speaking of pandemics and managing teaching <laughs> practices, um, what, what, what could we do to help deal with fatigue and burnout? Because I know a lot of us are facing that, if not probably in it. Mm-hmm. I read a story yesterday of a guy who ended up teaching his Zoom class of 300 students from his phone in an elevator he was stuck in with his eight and 10 year old. Oh, no way. (laughs) Yeah. And it occurred to me that people maybe need to cut themselves a bit more flat than they are sometimes. And that um, students really appreciate authenticity when um, their faculty member can say, you know, we're just going to put this on hold for today. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so I think, I think some of it is the expectations that folks have of themselves and where they're putting their energies um, to, to first be really careful about that, I would say, um, and what you're expecting of yourself, as well as what you're ultimately then modeling for your students in terms mm-hmm. of expectations. And would he want any of his students who had children to try to attend his class in an elevator with their two children, who, by the way, were freaking out because they were stuck in an elevator? Um, and so I think part of it is that is really thinking about what is at the core of my relationship with my students and what are the really essential things versus the things that have kind of been constructed around us as, um, you know, this is the way it's done when maybe those aren't the most impactful ways of, of teaching students, um, and so I, I think that's definitely one of the things is to really uh, distill down what, what matters the most in terms of helping my students learn. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of things, you know, around pedagogy, uh, peer assessments, teamwork, things like that, that we've advocated for over the years to help reduce faculty load. Um, I am personally uh, a I have over many years come to believe that rest is productive. Mm. And I think we've, we have gotten ourselves into a space where we think uh, that maybe rest is lazy and that we could always be, um, I, I talk about it in terms of making donuts, right? It's a product and we don't always have to be making a product. And so I really would encourage people to um, think deeply about what are the what are the most important things and what happens to my relationship with my students and to my investment in my teaching when I give myself time away from it to to not do it, to think about other things or to do what we would call nothing, but nothing actually is something because we are recharging ourselves. And so I think for me, that practice has been extremely impactful and I would really encourage others to, um, to try and think that way about it and encourage their students in that way as, as well. Yeah, that's, I love, I'm writing that down. Nothing is actually something. (laughs) It is, it is. I follow a a person on Instagram. Uh, The account is um, the Nat Ministry. The Nat Ministry, I think. Like like the Fly Nat? No, like Nap. Sorry. Oh, Nap. Sorry. (laughs) And it really, it's not like, there is no silliness. You know what I mean? Like, Mm. it's a very serious, um, decolonized way of looking at rest and the structures that colonization have put in place to encourage us not to rest. Um, And so I've really appreciated the learnings that I've had from that person um, around, you know, really thinking differently about my Protestant work ethic. Yeah, that's an interesting way that you put it, because as you're talking about that, I I haven't traveled the world as much as other people have, but I, I have a lot of, um, international friends Mm -hmm. and 
and I have been to different countries around the world. And it's interesting how they, how they perceive the idea of rest, napping, Mm -hmm. for instance, Mm -hmm. and so many cultures, so many cultures build it into the fabric. Yeah. And, and, I mean, the, the classic example is you go to Spain or Mexico right. and it's like, the, you know, they have their yeah. siesta in the afternoon. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, they do it in Greece too. My, yeah. my wife is from Greece. Uh, well, sorry, she's half Greek. Her dad is from Greece, but she's been to Greece wow. like half a dozen times because uh-huh. her dad's just like that. But like they would shut everything down for mm-hmm. like two hours. And the mm-hmm. expectation is that you go home. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so they, their work day is extended a tiny bit, but yeah. I mean... Who wouldn't want to do that? Exactly. Exactly. Time to go home, reconnect with your family, mm-hmm. have something good to eat, mm-hmm. sleep, and then yeah. you're recharged again instead of it's eight hours in and you got another couple hours to go because that's how you work. How engaged are you in your work and, and how much resentment do you feel towards your employer at that moment? You know, I, I don't want to be in that situation as a boss. Yeah, well, for sure. Right. And that's an interesting way to put it to that engagement resentment piece. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and in the North American, I'll even call it westernized perspective yeah. of the workday has shifted from, you know, it has shifted from 12 down to eight, down to six. Now it's back up to 12 and 14. If you mm-hmm. look at it historically, mm-hmm. amazing. So what have you changed your mind on recently? <laughs> with with these calm situations that we're going yeah. through right now? You know, it's really interesting because um, I actually have had a big, a big revelation recently. Oh. So it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that. And so here's, here's what it is. So for many years in teaching and learning and in open education, we've had this belief and way of going about things where we um, wanted to have educators come and learn in particular about developing curriculum, but also about learning how to teach. And um, through my work in open education, one of the research results that we know is that people don't tend to do adaptations to open textbooks they adopt them. They want the thing as it exists. And so that and the fact that we could never in all my years running a teaching and learning center, it was so difficult to get people to come out to that, to those sessions. It suddenly occurred to me as we had begun working on this work at BC campus around creating open courses that maybe what people really do want is for us to create really high quality learning resources that they can just use out of the box because they're doing that from publishers, right? We see them picking up fully developed courses and homework system works from publishers. We see them saying, I don't have time to do curriculum development or to do adaptation of an OER or to create new curriculum. So why aren't we doing that for them? Why aren't we creating really amazing, high quality, inclusive, decolonized, accessible, engaging, um, universally designed courses in subject areas and giving them to educators as open educational resources? So that sort of a, a few weeks ago, I, I've been noodling around a lot with where BC campus is now as a result of the pandemic and where we were getting to just before the pandemic. And I, I really, I, it's really shifted the way I think about what we need to do and the kinds of people we need to have at BC campus. Um, and the kinds of people we need to be collaborating with, the skill sets we need to be collaborating with. Um, so, yeah, so that was a bit of a revelation for me to, to stop banging my head against the wall of why aren't they doing this thing I've been trying to get them to do and say, 20 years is long enough to bang your head against that wall. You need to figure something else out here. And so I'm, I'm starting to 
think about what would that look like if we were creating an amazing first year biology course that could be used across BC institutions and, and kind of build a collection of exemplars. The other reason for the change, I think, too, was that I, throughout my career, up, up to very recently, have seen people saying, does anybody have a really amazing online course I can show so-and-so so that they'll understand? And nobody ever has one. And so I thought, why, are, why aren't we creating exemplars? Why, aren't, why don't we have these things to show people? And so that's, that's sort of been my, my shift in, uh, in thinking about curriculum development and what we're providing to educators. And for sure, there are going to be people who want to do their own thing from scratch, and they are amazing, and I want them to do that. But the vast majority don't have that time or inclination. Their skill set and expertise is in a discipline, not in teaching and learning, and expecting them to develop the skill sets that we have when we've gone to school to learn how to do this work is it doesn't match up. So that that has been my shift, um, I would say, in terms of, of something that I really have changed my mind about recently. That's very cool. That's very cool. And as an as a as as a constituent of yours, that gets me that gets me excited. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. I hope so. You know, it's been really incredible. I think we couldn't have been luckier at BC campus to have the complement of staff that we had when we went into the pandemic, because never have we had more expertise in instructional design, curriculum development, open educational resources, like we have the right people to do this work and figure this out at BC campus right now. And we have the right relationships with people in the system to, to do it in a way that will work. So, so I'm super excited. Um, it really got me jazzed to, to start thinking about that again. And, and it, it does go back to my sort of instructional design roots, which I always nerd out when I kind of get to start thinking about learning design again and, uh, and not budgets and HR and, and all of those kinds of things that come with a position like the one I'm in right now. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Do, just as a, as a tactical question, do you do anything specific to help yourself think of these out of the box ideas or, or do they just kind of flash upon you in a, in a moment of <laughs> clarity and serendipity? No, I definitely do lots of things around that. Um, and uh, everything from, um, I, I work with an executive coach who is amazing. Sherry LeBlanc is her name. And she really helps me noodle through some of these things and asks me the right questions to get me there. I also use some, um, some different models for thinking about things. One of the ones that I'm really fond of is the Kinefin model. Um, and that really helps me understand the situation that I'm in and the way in which I should approach the problem. So most of my work is in the complex domain. I don't have answers to problems. I have to throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks. And, um, and so that model is really helpful for making me be more comfortable with the complete discomfort of not knowing. Um, so, yeah, so I definitely do use uh, a whole bunch of different tools and models to, uh, to think about this stuff. I, I wish I could just be like, you know, it would be great, uh, but I'm not that person. <laughs> I know people who are that person. Yeah. What I have found in my experience, though, is the people who are that person are often not the implementers. And I like to think of myself as an implementer. And that's kind of been um, the way I've done my career. I very much think of myself as a doer. And so I, I don't come up with those inspirational ideas without doing some, um, some work to get there. But, uh, but, but those models, like I say, those models really help me um, get to that point and, and, and figure out, okay, how are we going to do this? What will be the implementation of this? Yeah, absolutely. I love the Kinefin model. Me too. <laughs> I love it. I'm, yeah. <clears throat> we could spend a whole session talking about that. Totally. Um, but we won't. <clears throat> so moving on. Um, <laughs> what, what, have, what are, uh, just kind of switching gears a tiny bit. Um, what are, what are your top three books that you absolutely must have? Like if, 
I'm not saying this would happen, but if, if you were to, if your if your house was to suffer some massive oh, loss and no. you could only save three books, Mary, which ones would they be? Well, here's the thing, Tim. I don't read paper books anymore for the most part. Everything I read is electronic because I am a Kindle person. I I started doing that. I, I'm a voracious reader and always have been. And um, because I read so much and because I had stacks and stacks, it's like boxes and boxes of books to move every time I moved and that kind of thing. But also because I'm too lazy to reach up and turn the light off in my bedroom when I'm reading at night, I... I read on a Kindle and also because then it's the, the books are with me everywhere. Right. So if I'm traveling, my book is on my iPhone cause I've got the Kindle app. And so whenever I want to read the thing I'm reading, it's with me. Um, so I wouldn't lose any books if there was a, I mean, I would lose some books, but not once I, I, uh, I would still be able to read everything. That said, there are definitely some, some books that I recommend a lot to other people and that have um, special meaning for me. And uh, so, so the first one is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe uh, by C.S. And that is, and that's because that really, that book is really, um, it reminds me about being a reader because it is so uh, deep into my past of a love of books and just loving that story so much as well as, you know, connections to my dad and mom about reading and them reading with me and sort of those childhood things um, about, about reading um, and, and that magical story. And um, I still tell my cat that he has tumnus legs, um, <laughs> you know, things like it really, yeah. So love that book and always will. Um, so that's, that's one. The second one is Dune. And uh, oh. I, again, like just, um, I'm not a sci-fi person normally, but for some reason as a teenager, reading that book really had an impact on me. And the funny thing about it is I read that book. And then when the movie came out, it was like, exactly the way I pictured everything. It was oh, perfect. perfect. And so, so I'm really freaked out. There's another Dune movie coming out. I <laughs> not screw it up. Um, but yeah, again, just sort of like this pathway through my life of being a reader and things that have really stuck with me as stories. I love a good yarn. And mm -hmm. those, those two books are both really good yarns. Mm -hmm. The third book is a nonfiction book and it's called Radical Acceptance and it's by a Buddhist teacher named Tara Brock. And um, I came to that book about four years ago, four and a half years ago in a time in my life when um, I was pretty dark and I had a lot of stuff had gone down in the, the previous 10 years that hadn't been dealt with as well as some trauma um, from other parts of my uh, life that hadn't been dealt with and everything just kind of crashed down. And, um, and that book was one of the books that was recommended to me really early on by a yoga teacher. And it was so, so helpful in beginning to be okay with the way I was feeling and not feel shame about how I felt about, um, you know, about my anxiety or about other, other things that were happening for me, um, to, to get beyond the feelings that I was, um, that there was something wrong about me, um, to just accept myself as I am and begin to build from there. Mm -hmm. Um, it was a, yeah, so extremely impactful in my, uh, in my healing journey around mental health. And so, uh, and, and a very accessible <clears throat> read as well. And, and I, I, to this day, I, um, listen to Tara Brock meditations like a couple of times a week and read her stuff. And it just really always, um, it's been extremely impactful for me around my own compassion practice and, um, the way I operate in the world. And so I, I highly recommend that book, um, for anybody who is kind of struggling with not accepting themselves just as they are, because you're perfect, just like you are. 
Well, I'm glad I got some Kleenex right beside me. <laughs> tearing up a little bit. And I'm not joking, like, because that, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to put links to these uh, in the show okay. notes for, for people right. to, uh, to go and take a look at. Good. And um, thank you for sharing those. It, that, yeah. it's, it's not what I expected, but um, <laughs> that's good. You know, I was going to say the pedagogy of the oppressed, the algorithm, algorithm. No. I mean, well, I love those books too, but. Sure. Uh, <laughs> sure. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned Lion, Witch in the Wardrobe because hmm. I mean, my wife read those books to our kids when they were, awesome. when they were young. Like, and I think we've gone through three box sets of those books Awesome! and it's, it's instilled such a practice in our kids that all of our kids still read at varying levels, but they still read. Yeah. But they went all, cam- they went camping this last summer together, just them. Not, a, we didn't go with them. In fact, they, they didn't want us to go with them, which I thought was strange <laughs> at first, but then like, wait a minute, this, the house is empty. Hey, wait, we're alone. This is, this is, this is weird, but it, it could kind of be, it could kind of be good. But awesome. um, what they, what they did every night uh, before they went to bed is they read, they read like somebody read out loud to the other three. Oh. Right. Awesome. And our youngest is 15. Our oldest is 21. And, and, and they do that because of what my wife has done with them throughout yeah. their whole years as kids. And so there's something powerful there. And yeah, and I'm seriously tearing up. Talking it's really about beautiful. No, it is. I think connecting with books is so impactful and um, between parents and kids, I think particularly. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't, um, I don't, yeah, obviously it's not like that for everybody, but for yeah. me as a, as a kid who um, the house I was raised in was quite, um, British in, in the sense of like pretty cold, um, emotionless, but those, those moments of connections with my parents around reading, um, are, are with me today still. And so I I really, um, yeah, it's so important, I think, to have those things that you can connect with your kids on. And that is really beautiful, Tim, that your kids do that for each other. That's incredible. Yeah. It makes me want to cry. Yeah, my bad. <laughs> Damn them. Yeah, let's move on. <clears throat> trace, trace people. Anyway, I won't go there. Um, so speaking of writing, you co-authored an article not too long ago mm-hmm. with uh, some lovely people at BC Campus. And I think there was one external to BC Campus yes. in that, in that yes. group. Yeah. Um, the article was about exams and, and how we approach assessment. Um, so tell me a little bit about that and your thinking around that Mm -hmm. so I have had a hate on for exams for a number of years and (laughs) like I'm not even gonna sugarcoat it um I think exams are one of those things like lecture theaters filled with 300 or more students Mm -hmm. that are a legacy of a colonial system that really doesn't work for most students. And also um, they don't assess learning. They don't assess learning. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's very different in the trades and I wanna be clear about that, that sometimes we're talking about professional exams that show that somebody has the skills to do the job and that's a totally separate thing. Sure. But when we're putting 300 plus students in a gym at desks with each other, to answer multiple choice questions, mm-hmm. that's a waste of everybody's time, including the educators who have spent 12 weeks teaching their students, you know? And so, um, so I, I have always had a lot of concerns about that from a bunch of different angles that started with, we are not assessing learning um, all the way through to the accessibility problems, um, inclusion problems, what it's like for an Indigenous student to come into that setting um, with the the kind of generational trauma that one might have if your parents and grandparents went to residential school and your whole family has some real issues with with, um, the structure of school as it exists. But then as the pandemic came on, people started implementing um, online proctoring software for exams um, that required students to buy cameras that would allow faculty and other strangers who were proctors to come into their homes and watch them 
write their exams. And I just, it's too much. And, and so I, I was compelled to say something about that, but I also wanted to say, I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's ever okay to say to a person in practice, don't do that and not say, here's what you could do instead. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that I really wanted that to be the focus of exams is not, you're all a bunch of idiots for doing this, but really you might not know that these are some of the problems that happen with exams. And here are some of the cool things that people are doing instead instead of doing that, that are equally impactful, that will help you have a more authentic relationship with your students, that will help them learn better, that will help you assess whether they learned better. Um, So, so yeah, so I I did a whole bunch of research and connected with um, my amazing colleagues at BC campus, as well as a couple of other um, colleagues, Jess, Jess Mitchell and Sue Donor, who are also experts in accessibility and inclusion, um, to kind of get a gut check on where I was headed and to get suggestions for articles and research I should be looking at to, uh, to fill in the gaps in the article. Um, so, so, yeah, so that was why I felt compelled to do it and, uh, and kind of how it, how it came about. Good. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a, it was a good, it was a really good article. And I don't just say that cause you're my boss. It was a really good <laughs> article because I, I always appreciate anything written down from people who, who take that extra step of, like you just said, you're doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, stop doing that. Yeah. But here's something that you could be doing differently that would get yeah. you on the track to doing it better. Yeah. And it, it's, it's, it's really a, 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 well, it's a healthy approach, right? Because if we go to the doctor and they just say, stop doing this yeah, and you look at them and go, okay, right. well, what next? And they're like, well, you, you figure it out. You know, there's, yeah. there's the Goog. You can go out and exactly. check this out. And yeah, totally. That, that, that doesn't do anybody any good. I think and, there's a lot of um, people don't know what they don't know. Right. And, yeah. and there are a lot of educators who are teaching the way they were taught and they were taught to lecture and, and give exams. And that's, that's not their fault. Yeah. <laughs> you know. And so I think taking a, an appreciative approach about, um, about what they're doing and, and, uh, and not saying you're so stupid, you know, but really um, I'm seeing this more and more. Our indigenization work is another place I see this is People are doing things because that's what they know right now. So let's give them information and, and help them and then they'll be able to do better. Yeah. I, I call it the apathy gap. And uh, it, you know, cause you said it, you don't know what you don't know sometimes. And, you know, as a, as a new faculty member, you know, 11 and a half years ago, I walked into a situation. I'm like, okay, I don't have anything. What do you got? Mm-hmm. And they're like, okay, so here's the curriculum. Here's what you should do. And oh, by the way, here's a bunch of exams and this is how we do it. Yeah. And you just, you inherit it and you're like, okay, mm-hmm. well, this seems to be working for the rest of them. Um, mm-hmm. It's probably going to work for me. And in essence, you don't even know what you're doing in, in to a degree because you, you see everybody else doing the same thing and it's working and you don't, you don't hear of any problems. And so you're kind of in this silo bubble about it. And then you get introduced to different forms of assessment, different pedagogical perspectives. And you're like, yeah. oh yeah, that makes sense. Why would, yeah. why would I want to do it this way rather than that way? So I call it the apathy gap and you're absolutely right that people don't know what they don't know. And, oh. and, um, and sometimes it's just a matter of like what you just said of just, you know, opening up a window yeah. <laughs> and, and letting that fresh breeze come in. Right. Exactly. It's, it's like that scene in the Hobbit where, Frodo is in, in the forest and, and they're, they're all disoriented and he climbs to the top of the canopy and gets his head above the canopy and breathes the fresh air and he can see for miles. And it's, and it's almost like you get this collective sigh of everybody yes. watching it just going, ah, okay, yeah. we're, yeah. we're going to be okay. Like, exactly. Right. Exactly. So I know one of the biggest topics that keeps coming up in circles that I rub shoulders with and I'm, and I thank you for, uh, um, what you said about the the trades, because everybody has a unique way of approaching assessments. And I think mm-hmm. trades has a, 
an extra wrinkle in there when it comes to practical exams and and how we show proficiency and especially when it comes to things like safety and and yeah. um, doing things in, in in a sequential order. Um, right. One of the one of the biggest things that keeps coming up is academic yeah. integrity yeah. and. Um, for me in my stage of COVID adaptiveness, um, there was a point where I'm saying, okay, can we just stop talking about this issue? Because, you know, it, from one perspective, I just kept looking at it as a control issue. Yeah. And I'm not saying that isn't true anymore. I'm just saying, I think my, my thinking has changed on that a little bit. Kind of like you said earlier of, well, if the system's saying this, why am I trying to get the system to fit into a triangle hole when they're a square peg? Right. But I'm interested to know what your perspective is on academic integrity and how should we wrestle with this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because it obviously it's coming up all the time now because of people being at a distance. And it, it's in the webinar yesterday, uh, the topic of rigor came up and I sort of I put academic integrity and rigor kind of into the same bucket in, in, in a way in terms of thinking about this stuff. And so I think the first thing I would say about that is we have made an assumption that the way that we were doing things was um, with rigor and with academic integrity. But I don't know that we actually know that. I think we're just making assumptions that because we are sitting face to face in uh, in a building, that there is some measure of academic integrity happening there. Um, and so, so first, I want to question that. I want to question that um, that we were in in a situation that we're assuming that we were in because I I kind of don't think we were. Um, And then I would say, like, what exactly are we talking about? Because for some folks, they just mean cheating, full stop, plagiarism, cheating on exams, things like that. Um, And I, and obviously, those are not good things. We don't want people to do those. But I think the way to stop those isn't to lock down what you were doing before even more tightly. It's to think differently about how to do that. So for example, back to the exams question, if you are uh, designing exams that you offer year over year and you've got an exam bank of answers, it is not out of the realm of possibility that those are going to be circulated amongst students and ultimately whether you're face to face or online that students are going to show up for that exam having already seen the questions so again you're not you're not able to actually assess learning all you've measured is can they remember things and regurgitate them quickly after that so one of the ways to get around academic integrity or to get around those issues of cheating is to design assessment differently in ways that require um, critical thinking, original thought, um, research into areas that other people might not be interested in. That is where I would like to see the approach come from for academic integrity and rigor is through good design of assessment. And so I, I really struggle with this conversation about academic integrity and actually a colleague and I were talking about this yesterday because there is an academic integrity network in BC that we are peripherally part of, mostly just to listen. Um, students are now also part of that network and they are pushing back hard on on those original concepts of what rigor looks like and, and, and what academic integrity looks like. And so I think that's a really good thing because that concept needs to expand again, I think just like everything else. And we're thinking very narrowly about, um, about our current, about what we've been doing and making assumptions that that was working. Um, and really what we need to do is kind of break open what we mean by academic academic integrity and find ways of doing that that aren't um, penalizing or um, or wrapping more security around the way we do things. It's actually to open up and think more broadly about how we engage with students and how they show learning to us. Yeah, that's, I didn't know that there was a community of academic integrity. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. That's, that's good. <laughs> I, <laughs> I think that's good. 
I'll have to think more about that. <laughs> um, exactly. And, and think about, okay, what's, what's the purpose and mandate of that? But, yeah. Yeah. Um, but at one level, that's really brave of them to open it up for students. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, so that to me is the beginning of, of, of really expanding the thinking about this is, is having, having students on there to, to talk about their perspectives and, and inviting people like BC campus staff to, to be there to kind of, you know, think, think differently about what this might look like. And, and it's not like there are a whole bunch of, I don't know, like, I picture accountants, sorry, accountants, like they're not like a bunch of bean counting people going, this is how things have to be. They're educators. They want to do well, but again, they're, they know what they know. And so uh, I'm, I'm super glad that they have invited other perspectives into their uh, conversations. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. I mean, I'm, I'm excited about that just to hear it, but I'd have to think and dig a little bit to yeah. get on board fully with a, Exactly. integrity group kind of exactly. sounds a little scary it really does <laughs> yeah um so to, to put your id hat on a little bit and from the perspective of a dad whose youngest child we are finding uh deals quite well how do i say this she suffers from anxiety quite a bit yeah how, how do we deal with test anxiety because i know i've seen it a ton in in trades where you know, both, both men and women coming to this, coming to our class, they're great students. Like they know how to do things with their hands. They're great thinkers. They're, mm -hmm. they're, they're just good people mm -hmm. and, and they care about what they do, but somehow you, 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 it all changes when they have to write an exam. And it's right. like, they, it's almost like they just literally shut down, like a steel gate comes down in front of them. That is literally what's happening. Actually, that's okay. the thing about it, right? Is for some people, uh, and this, I, I referred to this in, in the exams article a little bit, but one of the places that I've been really interested in looking at, at first for my own um, healing and, um, and learning, but now as a, as a way of understanding learning is we have an, a system in our bodies that um, communicates with itself and with each other. And so what we now know from research is that for some people under anxiety, their, um, their neural pathways don't all talk when they're anxious. So what, what we lose is access to the information in our frontal lobe. And that is, um, that's our intellectual capacity. So when we are in those very anxious situations, until we can get our nervous system um, regulating properly again, we're not going to be able to access the knowledge that we actually have uh, in order to be able to answer the questions on the test. And so that, that research is really exciting to me, even knowing, for example, that if you take several deep, slow breaths into your diaphragm, you will re-engage what's called the vagus nerve so that it begins to talk to the frontal lobe again. And you can access that information that you have and you can get out of um, fight or flight or freeze mode and begin to have that intellectual capacity again. So I think um, for people who are designing those assessments, there are things that you can do um, around how you how you. Um, tell students about the test, how you set up the environment they're going to be tested in, some of the techniques that you can encourage students to use, like those, that deep breathing, um, even things like um, giving more time or really dealing with that core issue of anxiety, which is often something that is happening physiologically. Um, understanding that and putting some support around that can be incredibly impactful for students. And just like back to that piece about exams and people in the gym writing exams, that happens to students, right? So they will go in there and have that anxiety and not be able to remember the stuff that they know because their, their vagus nerve isn't regulating in the way that it's supposed to regulate. So they can't access the knowledge. And so I think for people who suffer from anxiety, 
um, using some of those techniques to really deeply get into the body and what's happening with the body uh, with that anxiety is a, is a good way to um, to calm yourself before you have to engage in that test environment. Oh, that's good advice. That's really good advice. I'm writing a whole bunch of notes down because yeah, it's been really Dr. Stephen Porges is um, the guy who's done a lot of the research into the vagus nerve um, stuff and uh, and really understanding what is actually happening chemically, physiologically within the body, and therefore how can we um, how can we approach this? And it's so cool because people know like Buddhists have known this for years. People have known that deep, slow breathing does good things for your body, and so to see that. Um, being borne out in scientific research that will then be respected by Western learning communities is a really hopeful thing for me, I think, as a, as a person who is concerned about others with anxiety, who also has anxiety. I like it when people learn more about how to deal with anxiety. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, you make a good point that the, the, the Western westernized culture i think has a lot to learn from a lot of different cultures especially those that come from a religious approach to stress and anxiety in the world and and you know there are a lot of different systems that have meditative practices and it it's kind of a no-brainer right yeah it is and and yet you look at westernized i'll just use that you look at the west coast mentality of you know cascadia even and it's just go, 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 yeah. go, 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 go. Yeah, and, exactly. you know, I'll, the, the mantra of I'll get enough sleep when I'm dead right. <laughs> now becomes the, just the, the norm, right? And, yeah. and I yeah. think one of the spinoffs from COVID will be how well do we address these issues? Because I, I think there, there will be some kind of, there'll be some kind of mental health crisis come out of this, especially in faculty. Yeah. Because they've. I was just talking to somebody yesterday and they said, I, I still got six weeks holidays left and I have to take them before Christmas God. and I'm counting and I'm like, friend, there's only like, there's only like 10 weeks left in the year. Yeah. yeah. And, and they're feeling pressure from their administration. They're feeling pressure yeah. from their family yeah. and they have good reasons for not having taken their holidays in the summer, um, mm-hmm. you know, for no brainer, but yeah. on top of everything else, they're worried about that. And, yeah. and I've said to them, I said, you're worried about when you're taking holidays. Yeah. Like, just think about that for a second. That's awful. Yeah. And, and they, and they, they just said, yeah, like I, and, and so I, what are you going to do? Right. And, yeah. and they had, a, they had a few suggestions and uh, all healthy, mind you. And so all good, all good that way. But um, yeah, no, it's hard. It's hard. And I think, um, it is one of the, the I because I I'm reading about this stuff all the time and it's very much a personal interest and um, and sort of <laughs> forcing that thinking onto people at BC campus and I sometimes get and even just living where I live I get into my little um, my little bubble of these are the things that we do to make things better. And then I go out into the big world and realize that most people aren't doing those things. And most people aren't understanding their own bodies. Um, And, and it's an opportunity, right? So then it's great. I'm in a webinar yesterday that has people from across the country and I can allude to some of these things and, and hopefully influence somebody to do one little thing differently that day, you know, that, that leads to something that leads to something. It's a ripple. So, um, so you talking to your friend and saying, Hey, this is nuts. Um, hopefully that has some impact, which will then have an impact on their family and, uh, and others out from that as well. But, uh, we have got to spread the word that, uh, it's okay to rest. Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. Um, so what are your thoughts as a, as an ID specialist going back to your core? Mm-hmm. Um, as an ID specialist, uh, what do you think about the specialization of roles within universities and colleges when it comes to educational developers? You mentioned this earlier that as ID specialists, you've, you've gone to school, you've got undergrad, yeah. even graduate degrees in, yeah. in your field. What do, you, what do you think about the, the blending of, of roles in, in this process of educational development? I think. 
think it's awesome. I think it's great that there are um, lots of educators who are interested in pedagogy and interested in increasing their skill sets and understanding that. And it's kind of a perfect situation, right? Because they are the ones who are in the position to learn something, try it, see if it works, adjust it, evaluate it, try it again. Um, so I, I am all for that. I do think that um, instructional designers for many years have been um, not respected in the way that they should have been. And obviously I have some, um, some bias there, but these are, these are, as you say, these are people with graduate degrees in how people learn and how to help people learn. And I don't think that expertise is always appreciated or respected. And so, um, just like everything, I think, um, it's, fantastic and we want to spread the skill set around and increase everybody's skill set but i hope that that's not at the cost of of belittling people who have spent their careers and their education becoming experts in this field yeah i love your answer because i mean i i'm i don't have a degree in in instructional design and and i probably won't be getting one <laughs> <laughs> come um, on, what do you, you got? Come on, Tim, get going. Well, I, I have other <laughs> educational aspirations, actually. I'm, I'm uh, this may be the first time you've heard this as, as my boss, but uh, I, I have a d deep desire to get a PhD. Oh, Lord. And, Tim. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. So everyone listening, I'm going to be going into a second conversation with my boss after this recording is over. <laughs> so uh, think about me and, uh, you know. If you, if you, uh, if you don't hear from me for a little while, then we're, we're still all good, but, uh, um, we are all good. I, I just would, I would encourage you to think deeply about, about the meaning of that for you before you do the work. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, Mary, trust me. I, I, I've been, I've been thinking very deeply about this. Yeah. Um, but, uh, what I, what I was going to say is I'm thankful that what you said, because there are people in, in my discipline trades. Uh, who have been learning a lot about pedagogy curriculum design. Mm -hmm. And there's one of the challenges is siloism. And, right. and for, for a long time, there have been, I'll, I'll just call it three silos. There's, there's been trades vocational, there's mm -hmm. been academic, and then there's been teaching and learning centers. Mm -hmm. And in some situations at some institutions, that will remain nameless. Uh, <laughs> there's been some great work done in lowering those walls. Mm -hmm. I would, I would also say with a fair degree of love and humility, and I'm just reporting, not judging, but the, the situation that we're in now has almost in some cases allowed those walls to get higher. Yeah. And it just, it breaks my heart because yeah. I'm, I'm a very collaborative person and I, and I, and I believe that together we are stronger, that we lift as we climb. Um, and sometimes others lift us as they climb and we're missing out on a lot of great things that could be done yeah. because we're too afraid to take a brick out of that wall yeah. And, yeah. and allow somebody into that realm. And I'm not just talking about one silo. I'm talking about all of them yeah. because it's, it's not just, it's not unidirectional, it's multidirectional. Yeah. So okay. thank you for what you said there. That, that's, that's, yeah. that warms my heart. And again, I'm not just saying that because you're my boss. <laughs> um, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today and to, and to give us such great words of wisdom and experience and to be vulnerable and open. Um, it's, it's something that I deeply appreciate and respect about you as a person. And, and part of the reason I count myself blessed to be a part of the BC campus team. And uh, it's, it's made a big impact on my life. And, and I know it will continue to make a big impact, not just on people who work around in and around BC campus, but in the system as, as a whole. And, you. and you're doing great work. And as I wrap up, I want to get into the fab five. Okay. And they're, they're just five kind of rapid fire, short answer, question answers for us to okay. kind of put a big bow on this and, All right. and then we can, we can say uh, thank you at the end. So okay. you ready? Yep. Okay. Favorite movie. The Big Lebowski. 
<laughs> of course. Of course, dude. Of course, dude. Dude, how many times have you seen that movie? Oh, I can't I don't even know. Yeah. But more triple than digits? I, um, probably not triple, but definitely getting up there. I mean, oh. I can pretty much do the dialogue word for word as we watch it. So okay. other people don't want to watch that movie with me, except our colleague Dave Shakowich. It's also yeah. his favorite movie and one of the things we connect on. Um, so Dave and I could probably be pretty obnoxious sitting there watching that movie with other people. Oh, mercy. I've, I've seen it <laughs> once and I didn't get it, but you I hear that that's, again, I, that's the thing is it's a multi, there are so many layers, dude. So yeah. many layers. <laughs> that's hilarious. Okay. Favorite food. Chips. Sorry. Chips. Oh, chips. Any kind of chips. Any Give me kind the of chips. chips. All nice. the chips, all, all the chips. All the chips. Yeah. Just close your eyes and, and totally. all the chips. I love chips. They're crunchy and salty and good. All good. Beautiful. Uh, favorite band? That's a tough one. Um, favorite band. I mean, I think I'm going to just, okay. I'm going to say um, Santana. And that is in part because my favorite song of all time is Oye Como Va, and I love their version of it. And I've seen them live, and I think Carlos Santana is one of the most amazing guitar players ever. Oh, uh, yeah. So I'm going to say Santana. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Uh, favorite tech? Favorite tech? Well... I just got an uh, an Apple Watch for my birthday, and so that is definitely currently my favorite tech. I nice. held off for a long time, um, but I said to my husband in July, you know, if you wanted to get me an Apple Watch for my birthday, I wouldn't be too mad about that. So he came <laughs> through, and I have really been enjoying having reminders to take a breath reminders to stand up reminders to have some water all of those things that I forget when I'm getting going on things during the day and uh um and it can help me stay on track with the things that help me feel well very cool mm. very cool favorite teacher so I'm I'm gonna break rules and give you two of them. Okay, good. The first is my grade two teacher, Buffy Ainsley, Elizabeth Ainsley from mm -hmm. Bench Elementary School in Cobble Hill, BC. Um, she was amazing and just was such a caring educator. And I remember standing next to my friend Terry Ledger crying because we wanted Miss Ainsley to teach us how to write cursive so badly, and she did. <laughs> <laughs> so her and then the other one is Dr. Ian Johnson, who was my um, he was a um, faculty member in the program that I did um, at then Malaspina College, now Vancouver Island University in the liberal studies undergrad program. And he was sort of my faculty mentor through that program. And it was at a pretty rough time in my life. And um, he really was the person who kind of sparked me around critical thinking and being just really interested in um, academic life and thinking deeply about things in the world in ways that I hadn't before. And I have um, so much respect for him as a human being and as, as an educator. So those are my two favorites. Perfect. That's awesome. Thanks again, Mary, for taking the time to be with us. And um, I, I know that all our listeners will have a tremendous amount of insight from uh, what you shared with us today. So thanks for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me, Tim. It was really fun chatting with you and really, really think hard about that PhD. <laughs> yes, ma'am. I'll, I'll be on that. Hey, everybody, and thanks again for listening to this episode of the Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do. If you have subscribed, give us a review. That'd be awesome. All the show notes, links, everything mentioned in this episode will be available on the website, praxispedagogy.com. Thanks again for listening. And next week, we have Jen Wicks, 
who is the Director of Teaching and Learning Innovation at the College of the North Atlantic over on the East Coast. I guess that's why they call it the North Atlantic. Anyway, thanks again, and we'll catch you next week. Take care.